1: Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, Positive Conversations with People in Their Bubbles, Their Safe Spaces Around the World. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined from Fakatani by Mawira Karatai. Kia ora Mawira.
2: Sam, how's it going?
1: It's going very well indeed. It is sunny again, it's always sunny in the Riviera of Antarctica.
2: <laughs> Until tomorrow, eh Sam? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, but there's some harbour to be swum in before then. And who are we introducing today?
2: It's my great pleasure today to introduce distinguished Professor Linda Smith. Um, we've spoken of Linda and so have actually a few of our guests over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, Linda is a distinguished professor at Whariwananga or Awanui Arangi here in Fakatani And it is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Linda, thanks for joining us.
0: Uh, kia ora and kia ora to all your, your listeners,
1: your audience. Kia ora, Linda. Welcome. Where are you, Linda?
0: I'm in Hamilton at the moment in my little bubble, but I'm, I move between Hamilton, Wanganui, where, where we actually have a home, and Whakatane, where I work.
1: You talked about your bubbles. We've been asking people how their bubble life was. And, of course, their bubble life's now getting complicated because we've had several bubble lives and uh, whatever, the, whatever we're going through now is. But we'll go back to the start. How was your bubble life, the first bubble life last year?
0: It was good. It was very productive because, you know, writers like being in bubbles as <laughs> so long as you're fed. Um, so I've got a lot done. Um, And I was based in Whanganui for that lockdown. And then I think for the second one, when Hamilton uh, moved into, you know, an alert level, I stayed here. And then the third one, I got out of town and went to Whanganui. And I've only just got back to Hamilton because I thought my house here would be falling apart, which it is. So um, I needed to come back. And, And that's the reality, I think you
1: know, that we can't just exist in in the bubble. You said you were writing. What were you working on?
0: Um, Several things. I've finished um, some children's books, five children's books that deal with trauma, a couple of chapters uh, that have since been published in critical uh, Indigenous studies, and then um, various bits and pieces of incomplete Incomplete work, I would call it, but, um, you know, I had a good run at and and actually I felt really creative in that first bubble, like I felt um, compelled to write and compelled to do those things. This time around, I'm just completely lazy.
1: <laughs> What's changed? Was it just you were so productive last um, time, you've used up your productivity for two years?
0: Yeah, got into a different kind of zone, you know, picked up, work it out when you are, so I've been busy. Like, I've still been writing, but, you know, policy writing and uh, letter writing, those sorts of things, Um, you know, wrote a course and have been teaching. But, yeah, just kind of parking my ideas at the moment, just sort of reflecting, and that often happens for me. I go quiet because I need to think and... um, read catch up on all the reading that there's just so much really good work and um it's been a bit hard in New Zealand getting hold of books you know that I need to have come in from other countries I'm I'm brassed off I've got two I ordered from Great Britain uh by Sarah Ahmed who writes around um sexism and racism and diversity and those sorts of things and they got lost in transit um yeah, so that's life. Just have to roll with it.
1: So tell me about I these children's books. Tell me about these children's books.
0: Yeah, I've been writing them for a while and, and trialling them with uh, different audiences. But I just, you know, I work, some of my research is in the trauma um, space, Taupapa Māori approaches to trauma-informed care. And what I noticed, there's a huge gap in literature for children that addresses full on the traumas that our children are experiencing. It's like adults don't want to talk to them about it. They don't want to talk about suicide. They don't want to talk about, you know, these awkward subjects that are awkward for, for adults. But if you lie to children or you're silent about it, then children make up their own stories and you know, it can be a long-lasting trauma for them. So I've tried to write stories, you know, they are, they are a story, but in which there is, a, um, you know, like a, a parent who's terminally ill, uh, the death of a sibling, suicide, um, domestic violence and child abuse. And, the, you know, so the focus is on the child, um, they've been the most difficult pieces of writing I've ever done, and I've gone through an editing process, so that that's always humiliating and um and good for you. And then they're just commissioning the illustrators. Uh, it's been a bit hard um, in the publishing world to get things moving fast, but they're on the way, you know, and they'll probably come out next year.
1: The theme of our show is positive but not deluded. I couldn't begin to think how you would write a children's book about trauma that still has a positive mindset. How, how do you how are you approaching that?
0: Because the focus is on healing. How do you um, so that, you know it's about acknowledging that children have to go through a healing process, and I think that the copa pumadi element of it is that the fano is the first a call for healing and that if they kind of sort their um, stuff out and if they're loving and they listen and they kind of take good advice but essentially you know rely on their good sort of um intuition often that they can actually get through it so i've got different kinds of farno. each street's got a different kind of farno. i don't believe in sort of stereotypical whanau um grandmothers feature a great deal in each of the books uh, but also some funky um fathers because you know I wanted to show that men and that fathers um can be you know loving and quirky but inventive you know so <clears throat> part of it is adults understanding that their children are also going through grief and loss and hurt and pain you know and that Adults don't have to do much, really. They just have to acknowledge that and then wrap that child, you know, up in a whole lot of um, different sorts of quiet strategies often. They're not, you know, they don't have throw them all into therapy. Um, they, they just have to find opportunities and spaces for a child to um, process grief. In the same way, adults have to process grief. But if you don't give children space to do that or language to express it, then it gets processed internally and you you don't know how healthy uh, that will be.
1: Is it the same set of principles for working with children for other things that are upsetting? I'm thinking of the pandemic. for How we communicate with with kids about those sorts of challenges?
0: All about communication. It's all about... um, Adults being attentive to children and their needs. You know, it's, it's kind of simple stuff, eh? We think it's simple stuff for parents, but when parents are also going through this trauma and they're going through grief, um, you know, sometimes a parent, the adult, has to transcend their own pain and hurt and um, sweep that, you know, child in, And that that's where Farno become a real resource because you've got other adults, you've got, you've got grandparents, you've got cousins, you've got, you know, ones who, it's not that they are purposefully trying to heal, but they do really good things that make a child feel that they belong and that they, you know, have connections and, and they can trust adults. I mean, I think that's a really critical um, issue, with, you know, with things around abuse, for example children don't trust adults then you know they're in trouble really in terms of their well-being but they have to have adults who are trustworthy who
1: deserve their trust let's squeeze in Cora crazy things
3: i myself yeah going to be able scream, do that. do not let
2: Linda, there's, there's this very complicated space that we're living in at the moment where um, sovereignty issues have have become intermingled with anti-vax protest and and I'm really struggling to kind of get my head around what seems like a lot of uh, anti-Maori sentiment in that Um, and money behind the anti-vax movement and yet here we are standing waving the Tēnū Rangatēra Tanga flag and I'm struggling with that.
0: We've seen it overseas and it's how I think white supremacy is, well, it's well resourced uh, from international sources, not just in terms of, um, you know, ideas and media, but actually also with money. And it's a way of disrupting... um, you know, our, our sovereignty narratives, our, you know, Māori agendas around Tino Ranga It is crazy, you know, crazy stuff. And um, to see like an, a neo-Nazi um, flag and a Tino Ranga Tanga flag together kind of demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of what that Tino Ranga flag stands for. But I find what I'm really interested in is that this construction of freedom of choice, which is a real neoliberal construction of choice, is not really a right or a freedom to have those choices. Um, and so they've sort of constructed this neoliberal idea of freedom and then equated it to tinuranga tirutanga, which has never been about freedom in that sense that neoliberal sense, you know, it's always been about sovereignty, self-determination, which are, these are political and legal ideas. So it is a co-option and it's this mix of um, fundamentalist Christian or branches of, you know, I wouldn't even say it's the entire Destiny Church because I know people in Destiny Church who are vaccinated, you know, they're not all stupid and they're not all... Um, you know, sort of bowing to the will of a single individual. You know, many of them make decisions for their family, but this is a very selfish, narcissistic sort of um, element. You have got the neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and then you've got an interesting mix of Maori, because there's some um, iwi leaders in that group. There are Maori midwives. There are. Uh, People in the health system, they're teachers. They're people who you think should know better, who should have better critical skills. It's kind of appalling. I'm appalled um, at, you know, the fact that there are people in the health sector who are speaking against vaccination and teachers who, you know, have made these decisions. I mean, I, I've grew up in a pretty down-to-earth sort of family and if the government pays your salary, that's, that's who pays your salary, you know, and you make that decision. You you either go to work and do what they say or you don't. There's no freedom there. There never was. So it is interesting, but it is, I think, partly what Graham also calls this politics of distraction, that you can get hugely distracted by the, in the end, I think it will come down to less than 1% of complete crazies, um, and then there are other people have got moving other agendas.
2: One of the um, an interesting thing that's happened this week, where the Ministry of Health introduced a document out to all of the GP practices and anyone in health frontline health, which uh, outlined transmission and your 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 COVID risk if you are a frontline worker depending on the level of COVID in the community. And that is now widely circulating around social media, but without the banner that introduces it and gives it context. And people are all up in arms about, you know, we've been tricked and it just, oh, it just drives me to distraction. I have to stay off social media because of it. But what's the solution to the social media problem? Like, how do we introduce some criticality into that space?
0: Well, it's too late in a sense for many people because they haven't learned critical thinking with media. I think the younger generation have. They actually have, they study that in school. It's their curriculum. But I think for a lot of adults, they've missed that boat. I mean, you wouldn't ask social media for medical advice, but somehow people think through social media you get science advice and you can become a scientist. Um, You know, if you Google... You can become a scientist, and that's just—it's—it's it's a presence. You can't currently get rid of it from our lives, and I think it just means that you know the Ministry of Health and um, all our systems need to get smarter about how they counteract those messages. They have got to, and it's about people. So especially in Māori communities, as we can see, when the whole water start to move into communities face to face and answer all their questions they get results so it has to be vigorously counted Um, it's not just enough now to hand out pamphlets Um, you know i think these have to go with really and not just mainstream media campaigns because these people aren't on mainstream media they're on social media which is not you know, there are parts, pockets of it which are completely not mainstream um, and not pro Māori. That's the other thing. A lot of social media is anti Māori at its core, uh, but a lot of Māori gets swept up to that. And um, I think social media sort of enables quite a few personality types to kind of live this vicarious life. As a uh, you know deeply negative tra- traumatized and um, opinionated person you know who with, who has no qualms and being vicious and hurting others, face to face people you know generally won't do that.
2: Yeah I've noticed that, that um, and, and those kind of voices are getting stronger uh, and I see them popping up in places where I've never seen them before. It seems to be a time where, if you if you're a little bit unhappy or disgruntled, and if you don't have the knowledge or understanding of things to be able to help you get past that, you you then turn into this social media monster. That, um, and it's actually it's really sad. It's terrifying. It I is sad. relationships breaking down.
0: Yeah, and and reality will kick in for many. I mean, I think in the mandating space that institutions just have to hold the line and most people I think will um, comply but the anti-vax is also mixed up with you know racism, general frustration uh, with life and the government and all sorts of things And and I think in the way it's how that gets teased out, how those different issues get teased out and addressed. I mean, I do think um, all the political parties have been pretty good at not fanning that flame. I mean, ACT and, um, you know, New Zealand First and National could quite easily fan the flame of the anti-vax movement to get to the government, but they've actually been quite sort of consistent and judicious to right now, I don't know what that would mean in an election year, but for the most part, New Zealand has a stable government with generally sensible people in it. Now, you can't say that about a lot of governments overseas.
1: Now, I need to talk about your book, Decolonising Methodologies, which I'm pretty sure is one of the most cited New Zealand books there is. So well done. Did you expect it to have the sort of impact it's had?
0: No, um, no, I didn't. Um, And it took a long time. It was like a slow-burning book. (laughs) It came out the end of 1998. You know, it's now the third edition came out um, at the beginning of this year. So it's taken a while to catch on. Um, But when you write something, you don't know how far it will go or where it will land. You have no control in a sense over that. But I did know that I needed to say the things that I was saying. That it was really important to put that out into the world. Um, you know, I had that belief that um, what I was trying
1: to express needed to be needed to be expressed. When you look back at the the first edition of it, does it does it still hold true for you? Are you still reading that and thinking, yeah? I'm glad I wrote that. That's that's good. Or are you revisiting and and the ideas evolving?
0: I mean, ideas evolve and thing and strategies evolve in that. But the core of it, I think, still holds as a critique of Western knowledge. Um, interestingly, there's whole new audiences for that book. I've done oh, a whole lot of talks this year um, in the UK and Europe, maybe more than I've ever done in the previous couple of decades. Um, so it's speaking to a different generation in a different kind of way. Uh, but, you know, when I go back to it, some of it I wrote for my PhD, but not all of it, and that was in the first part of the book. Um, I think I there were some things I needed to do in the second part which were important, which is to link, you know, the... Um, I guess, sovereignty issues for Indigenous peoples, issues around the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples with the work that Indigenous researchers were doing. Because um, at the time, there was this sort of idea that, you know, Indigenous researchers are just, um, you know, that w- once you become successful in education, it, you, you're you assimilated, you know, into the white world Um and yet for most uh Maori and other indigenous scholars i know they were sent to university to do something good for their communities to contribute back um but that bridge uh, both ways is a really um difficult bridge to walk to walk across it's sometimes hard to get home um you know when you've been well highly educated because for for some depending on the careers they're in you know they're away from home for 25 years building their career and yet in our communities they think you get a bachelor's degree in um humanities somehow you can be the lawyer who litigates a treaty claim um and dishes out health um you know health information they they don't necessarily know the different um fields that you're in they just know you're well educated yeah so I don't regret saying anything uh, in the book, but things have moved on, and so the both the second and third edition tries to address that without writing a whole new book.
1: <laughs> what does it tell yeah, us? I um, mean,
0: that's the challenge. <laughs> yeah.
1: What does it tell us about the, the 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 bringing together the Western science and the the indigenous beliefs? In this case, the Maori beliefs, and I'm thinking of things like the vaccine is Western science and you're asking people to trust it alongside whatever else is important. Does it tell us about how we can bring those two worlds together?
0: It does. I mean, there's more happening in that what's called the interface uh, between science and other knowledges or, you know, different knowledges, different ways of speaking about that. Um, And really, it's not just science. I think what I demonstrate is, you know, most of the traditional uh, academic disciplines are deeply rooted, their foundations are deeply rooted in imperialism and settler colonialism. Um, But Indigenous knowledge also has a huge component which is based on the same principles as science. You know, our ancestors didn't navigate the Pacific just sticking their fingers up in the air and decided which way the wind blows. Um, You know, it was informed by a different knowledge system that still helped them to navigate their way across the Pacific over hundreds of years. Um, And that took powers of observation, a deep understanding of the environment, um, and a really coherent philosophy about how the world works, how... You know, how humans work and, and the environment. But those knowledges, even though, um, you know, colonization set out to destroy them, they're still remnants of them and they've been revitalized really quickly. And I think science itself has evolved. Um, there are different, you know, more sciences, if you like, and more ways of thinking about uh, knowledge production. So I think in this COVID pandemic, some good examples of why indigenous knowledge is important because the scientists can do they can identify the virus where it came from they can design and test vaccines they understand epidemiology the public health blah 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 not good at understanding how to inform our people not good at going into and understanding the dynamics of whole communities who've been disenfranchised by health. To bridge that science to people who sit at you know, home in a Māori community, you require those who actually have Indigenous knowledge. And I don't mean rongoa you know, practitioners. I mean people on the ground who know how to build trust, how to um, work with a whole whānau approach, you've got a different philosophy of care, uh, different copa by which they operate. So, you know, just in that little example, you can see that for our communities, Indigenous expertise really matters. And it's not, you know, it's not dogma. It is critical. It is a way of engaging critically uh, with our communities, understanding what, pushes their buttons but makes them tick and turns them on and off and those sorts of things.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned the talks you've been giving in the UK and it's probably the pandemic has meant that people are now more prepared to accept somebody coming in remotely but there's also I think there's Mm a a, a late understanding that decolonisation means more than just the changing the government but it's about those cultural and, and psychological and, and all those sorts of systems effects and I've, I've heard from two or three friends in Scotland about how much attention I think it was one of the Pacifica delegates at the COP a couple of weeks ago who, who described Scotland using decolonisation terms and it, it never occurred yeah. to them
4: yeah.
0: I've had uh, Scottish um, – there's some organisations in Scotland, like the Scottish Highlander Association or whatever, who've um, written to me asking, you know, whether they could adapt, um, you know, things in the book for their circumstances. And I said, go ahead, you know, if, if it's useful and uh, works for you, um, you do that. And and interestingly for me um, – you know the UK learnt how to colonise by actually colonising the Welsh, the Scottish, and the Irish, and, and the Cornish. And many of the tools that they used, yeah, and, and the Cornish. But the tools they used in Ireland, in particular, you know, which, which were really terrible, um, is what they import, they exported across, you know, across the world. Um, the, the interesting thing when I speak to those in the UK, and you know, many of them are interested in decolonising the curriculum and I just say to them, so if you decolonise your curriculum, what do you think would be left? You know, like what is their knowledge actually built on? What do they understand about that? Um, how would they sort of grapple, grapple with that? Because... You know, for the same way that colonization just attacks your identity, or well, decolonization also raises up. You know, who are we? You know, if we're if we're this huge empire that colonized the world, what what does it mean for our identities? What what is our culture? And I know, you know, I spent sabbatical in the UK. I mean, in the end, what I came to appreciate is it's lots of little, um, quite fierce subcultures and communities and regions and um, villages where, you know, if they're still in their villages, they live a very extended, um, what we would call a whānau life. But it was curious for me because, you know, I have a great-grandfather, one from Scotland, one from England. I was thinking, why would you come to New Zealand and then, Assert this notion of a nuclear family on us, yeah, you know, what was that about when, in their own villages, that's not how they lived? So I think it was not just a cultural thing. I think it was a partly a fundamentalist Christian thing and also a capitalism thing you know I, I, I don't think it's just uh, British culture or S- Scottish culture because essentially those are uh, Scotland is essentially tribal in a way. Or clan-based, so I think that mix of capitalism, liberalism, and Christianisation, and then um, the culture of the of um, conquest sort of merged into these settler identities and settler cultures.
1: I need to squeeze in Lab Natural.
5: It's your smile in the marketplace Your touch when we meet again It's more than it was at the start Oh, come closer to my heart now It's something natural to do with you It's something natural to do, baby I'm feeling natural with you Set numbers sit
0: Sprite
6: of the Forest of Orokanui, Dinitan's favorite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, namahi arohan kia koutou I hope you're all having a best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here, making things better. Thank you. So I know that for us all, over the last more than two years, we have been having to deal with an ongoing global pandemic, And for all of us, this means having to find new ways to do BC feel and that new skills that we never knew we possessed have arisen within us in order for us to help each other, be kind to each other and, of course, kind to ourselves. So I really hope for you over the last several months You have found ways to really appreciate these new skills, the ways that each day you are contributing to care for those around you, and not just, of course, in the human world, but in the more-than-human world, that living world that we're all part of, that supports us, that sustains us, that reminds us of who we truly are, a co-evolving triumph of nature's art in an infinite web of life. So of course I find myself speaking to you today from my heart's home, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. Have the amazing Grant Spray School here today. And at the moment, they're just watching some videos of what all our baby Kiwis get up to at night. And of course we can't have the baby Kiwis being disturbed. So having the opportunity to put out little trail cams and watch them is so helpful. It's also a way that they can understand how much we have in common. That just like us, the baby Kiwis have to learn to share. That just like us, the baby Kiwis have to establish who they are and how they can look after themselves, find food, redecorate around their burrows. All of these things, marking them out as individuals. And of course, for some of our baby kiwis, it is harder. And one of our little baby kiwis, Tipu, who was always very small, had to go to the wildlife hospital and be looked after there. And so just from these very, very short videos, of course, we're able to tell a much greater story. Something that I really love about being able to work here and work with the living world is that it allows us to invite those who visit us to join in a long-term plan for restoration in this area and beyond. And in inviting them to join that long-term vision, of course, they see new aspects of themselves, which is so wonderful. So I really hope for you in the same way you are able to see how you can be inviting others to join you. And not only that, but you can be inviting those aspects of yourself that perhaps you were not aware of before that can also join you coming forward in new ways. Something that I love again about about being here is that I've been here for so long, for 12 years, and I want to be here forever. And I know that it will outlive me. And of course this is true for all of us in the spaces we're contributing to. So I really hope for you today you have a sense of that long-term care, tanga and how much you are contributing to that each day. I also hope that you have a sense of all of the love and appreciation that surrounds you for everything you're doing. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much,
1: Kaki. Too. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Linda Smith. Linda, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick?
0: In relation to Māori, anything you um, like. Well, hopefully, hopefully the important role of Te Tiriti or Waitangi in the governance of New Zealand and the way um, decisions are made and understood. I hope that sticks. Um, From that cascades quite a few other things in the area. I hope in terms of the New Zealand curriculum, a critical understanding of New Zealand history, our story, um, sticks. Um, You know, I hope that the progress that I think Māori have made across a number of spheres in terms of capability building and a greater economic um, self-determination, you know, I hope that not only sticks but develops and grows because, you know, one measure of wellbeing is that we're not all working for government, that we are working for ourselves and um, that means that we need um, structures in that, that employs our people. So, I, you know, I think there's, there's a whole lot of things that we hope doesn't come undone. I think local government is an area that needs a lot of attention and um, I really support that Three Waters um, campaign because, you know, if I were to demonstrate where parker governance breaks down, it's at the local government level. They're terrible. I've, I've witnessed um, councils and local government and you've got a bunch of hobbyists who think they can make sophisticated decisions about water, about um, engineering, you know, climate change. The fact is they can't. I mean, in Hamilton we had an anti-fluoride expert who got voted onto a health board. Um, you know, people think that they're entitled to govern when they've got no experience, and when I walked into a council meeting and witnessed one, I thought, "Māori governance is pretty good." When I think about this standard, this is a this is like a low threshold, um, and those days are gone. Because if you just look at water, you know, local government has sold the water under our feet, quite
1: literally. I have and some dishing
0: up water we can't drink and can't swim in.
1: I have some questions to end the show with and almost negative time, so we're going to have to rattle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years?
0: Well, that's a big question. I I think I'm successful across everything. I try to be successful. (laughs) I frame everything I do as a success. I think I'm a cool wife. I'm a great mum. I'm a wonderful grandmother. I'm a really great colleague. So... I am a very positive person, and I see, and and actually, to be honest, at the end of the day, I do like to review what I've accomplished. I get up in the morning, and I like to achieve something, and that's how I live my life. I don't get up and I feel really guilty if I say, oh, let's just blob today. I do like to start a task and finish a task, you know, and I feel good when I've... Um, finish something like yesterday I had a big bin come in and I cleaned up the garage that makes me successful
1: We're writing a book of these conversations it's called Tomorrow's Heroes it's our team of people doing good work so you are in that team what's your superpower?
0: Positivity
1: Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes why is that?
0: Because I act upon the world. I don't just witness it or comment. I try to improve it and try to change it through words, through ideas, through teaching, through research.
1: So, what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or two?
0: Well, you know, I was hoping to retire, but in my world, in the Māori world, that's like an impossibility. Um, but the one thing I am working on is a novel, um, a novel for young people, and I've been doing sort of a bit of research on that, um, in particular around native birds and and the forest and our environment and what that would have been like prior to humans arriving, because that's when I went to, want to start my novel. But, you know, I'm having to do all this research on bird life and plant life, and um, I'm fascinated by the what's called the Haast Eagle, which is the largest eagle in the world. So I've been doing research on that, and I'm trying to reimagine that world. So that's, you know, that's my secret little... Piece of
1: research I'm doing in order that I can write a novel. The harsd eagle at Papa has got mawera's feathers on it. Mm. And <laughs> lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners?
0: I think keep positive, be keep keep well, and if people are in bubbles, um, you know you can, you can you have the power to create that bubble as you wish, and um, to make it a good bubble. A happy joyous bubble not a bubble you drown in
1: thank you for that moira
2: linda it's really hard to know where to start um to in thanking you for your contribution so far you can't retire until everything's fixed And we're a long way from things being <laughs> fixed so <laughs> so no retirement for you <laughs> but you you have made such an incredible contribution and there are so many of us who appreciate you and who can who can pinpoint the day we changed to the day we started reading decolonizing methodologies and yes it was a while ago that you wrote it but the the value of the messaging in it has never changed and um, i just feel so much gratitude for you for your work and just for your general goodness uh and it's been a real joy to have you on the show today and thanks for joining us
0: thank you
1: thank you You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on openarbot.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie This is 660
4: I'm
1: Samuel Mann in Soyers Bay, Dunedin With Mawira Karatai in Fakatani And in Hamilton we've been joined by Linda Smith That was Blowing Bubbles We hope you enjoyed the show
4: I'm not a man, a Come look at the polar Come look in the final Come look Oh he he ana, aheni. hey I'm not aheady It's the warichi hoa fare a ana hey. Te my mai No lo ana iya te mana I'll i ki kia ki ukaipo, i kwe, i hari mai